Welcome to the Honest Property Investment Podcast with me, Natasha Collins, property investor, chartered surveyor, and CEO of NC Real Estate, my boutique firm of surveyors, which specializes in helping investors make money from commercial and mixed-use properties in the UK through our asset management services. Want to find out more? Head on over to ncrealestate.co.uk. Okay, so today I invited Sam from my team onto the podcast because he made a bold claim that he could offer 2.5% return on investment in 2.5 minutes a day, right? <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, I've, I've seen it out there on Facebook and I think I can do it. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, so we thought we'd have a sit down chat today to go through return on capital employed and try, try our hardest for you listeners to try and stop depending so much on this figure. I think that's a fair statement, right? Yeah. Um, Because at the moment in the property market, what we're seeing is some really great deals coming to market. and that is because there is, there are a lot of bigger firms who are having to dispose right now, and especially the big pension pots. They do have to get rid of some of their stock that is now classed as too risky because they do have risk profiles. And once those, once those yields start creeping up into the 9, 10, 11%, they fall outside of the risk profile of the pension. They come back to market. doesn't mean necessarily that there's anything drastically wrong with them. Um, or what we're also seeing is developers who have maybe over leveraged their mortgages are being pulled in and they have to get rid of the the deals it's not that these properties are coming to market and there is something wrong with them they are actually there are actually some really good deals coming to market at the moment which we believe that people should be picking up but what is stopping everybody is this return on capital employed figure that's what we're talking about today. So the reason that I've invited Sam onto the podcast is um, because Sam has a really, really good idea and insight into where we should be actually looking at investing and what the benchmark metrics are based upon the investors Sam works for, the big um, investors who are out UK wide, right, Sam, your clients? UK wide investors. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and so can I ask, when you're big investors who have built these massive pots, I assume that they just keep building and building and building, and it's almost like compounding properties now. So the more rental yeah, income absolutely. they get in, the more they can afford. Is that how the strategy works? Is that what 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 is the strategy? Yeah. So for the most part, for the most part, I work for a principal investor um, with a group of subsidiary investment companies um, that that sort of play into that. Um, but the the foundation of the investment is property, obviously, um, and the very sort of rudimentary principle is to um, consistently purchase assets using turnover, uh, ultimately, or, or net profit um, from the rent roll. Um, and we set out a budget at the beginning of the year with some um, some basic 
uh, rudimentary, uh, some sort of metrics we work to, such as percentage yield based on the asset class, um, and ultimately a net asset value um, uh, benchmark to obtain within the, the the sort of the time frame of the financial year. Yeah, that's the, that's the sort of rudimentary system that we put in place. And obviously, it's a bit more complicated than that, but the, the, yeah, that's the that's the basics. So to confirm, does return on capital employed ever come into it? No. Okay, right. So when we're looking at benchmarking, um, what yields do you set? How do you calculate those yields? How do you decide that that's what you're targeting? So we decide yields um, fairly early on in the, um, the the budgetary process, and obviously that's a moving feast. So the benchmarks, like any um, investment company, we have regular P&L meetings, um, but at the beginning of the year, uh, which are informed partly um, by our own requirements and partly by market sentiment and, and what's available. So there is some flux. Um, but at the beginning of the year, we look at the portfolio as a whole, what the market's doing, and then we ascertain, uh, we make a decision on the sorts of units we want to acquire within that year based on our own diversity objectives um, and based on the market and our, our requirement of yield. So by way of example, this year we've been um, focusing on certain geographical areas um, for residential stock. Mm-hmm. Um, and we have been looking for net yields of around five to five and a half percent for those assets. And that's the basic benchmark. There's a bit more that goes into it. Um, obviously, we're looking for quality stock. We're looking at energy performance increasingly. Um, and, and, you know, sustainability is featuring and factoring into our investment criteria more. We've identified um, as well that we want more commercial stock within our portfolio, specifically um, offices and secondary tertiary retail this year. That's a, a requirement that's specific to this portfolio because of diversification requirements, but it is also largely market driven. We see that marketplace as being one that we want to be into for the longer term. Yep. Um, and we see some opportunity there, I think, as other um, other investors divest bluntly. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and on those, look, there is some variance geographically or based on the asset specifically, but our basic threshold um, is to achieve a, a net yield of 7% or above. And do you use finance when purchasing? Uh, uh, we're fortunate enough um, that for our main holding company not to use any finance, nor are we leveraged. Okay. Um, I appreciate that's a fairly fortunate position, but it is, um, it's a, a generationally built business. Um, the, the main company is incorporated in 1945, so it goes back some time. Um, some of our subsidiary companies um, do finance. Mm-hmm. um do do use finance um and i think the one thing that i would say is that whilst looking at yield we are also longer term investors so we don't strategically look to hold churn flip um any units so provided we're making investment now and the yield is maintainable with an upward trajectory we're happy to hold for a longer term mm-hmm. Okay, so 
then the strategy for, for this portfolio, as with the big portfolios that I've worked on it as well, is essentially every time you budget for the year how much cash you've got coming in, you set aside a pot for how much you're going to reinvest in buying new properties. I assume you set aside a pot for increasing the value of properties or increasing energy performance? Yeah, so yeah, probably the biggest biggest proportionate um, pot at the moment is actually, yeah, for reinvestment into those assets to increase sustainability and letability ultimately because we are acutely aware that some of our older stock of, of traditional construction say 19 turn of the century sort of stuff um bluntly needs investment some of that secondary tertiary retail with a g rating is not going to be very appealing to some tenants um so yeah a big pot that that goes back in and reinvests into the assets and then you would then have that smaller pot that pays for everything or pays salaries or dividends to the, owners of the companies. Yeah, there's an ongoing ring fence, uh, an ongoing set amount that um, effectively covers the overheads, operating costs of the business. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So with that in mind, then, when we're speaking to clients who come to you with return on capital employed figures, how do you approach that? What are you seeing in this market? How do you feel about it? Um, how do I feel about it? I think um, <laughs> it, it's an it's somewhat of an oddity to me, I suppose, because I've always been used to and I've always been taught um, return on investment or, uh, you know, bluntly, how quickly you're going to get the money that you deployed on the asset back in time or um yield are uh, you know the, the, sort of the two most important factors i suppose both both in, in turn of one and the same um return on capital employed i've always understood to be um more of a financial ratio used to assess a company's profitability and capital efficiency mm-hmm. um so for me and certainly um i'm fortunate enough to work with some um uh the two accountants that work within our business are both chartered accountants, um, both CTA, so tax specialist. Um, whenever we've talked about uh, return on capital employed, it has not featured in any of the conversations regarding our property assets. So uh, uh, bluntly, I think if I'm really honest, I find mm-hmm. it an oddity to talk about it um, in terms of property assets. I, I would agree with you. The reason we started incorporating return on capital employed into our deal analysis is because so many investors would come to me and say, Natasha, you haven't got that metric in there. And so I added it in there as a uh, another percentage to look at. But for me, again, it was never the be all and end all. What I like to look at is... um. Yes, return on investment. How many years is it going to take it take to pay back the asset? If we can do it within ten years, I'm like fabulous. That's what we're we're after because property is a long term game, not a short term game, you know. And then I compare the yields with other yields within the portfolio. And if we're doing better, fabulous. If we're doing worse, we probably shouldn't buy it. I, I agree. I think there's there's lots of different metrics to look at. And, and over ICE for me is probably liquidity. 
I think is important, um, less so for us, but for, for sort of your um, pension pot investors, I think liquidity is important. Um, passive income um, mm -hmm. and, and, and yield. Yeah, ultimately, those those are the, the metrics I would be looking to. Um, ROC, uh, return on capital employed, would be lower down my list. Yeah. And one thing that then highlights of this conversation is you have to reinvest the money that's coming into your portfolio back into your pot to keep building the pot so that you've got more money to invest. I too don't know any big investors. So I ran the um, the commercial part of the Sloan Stanley estate, for example, all of that income that we were bringing in, um, yes, some of it would go on our, our salaries in the estate office. A lot of it would go to the family to pay for their living. Again, there was a massive chunk of that income just reinvested back into the portfolio, back into the portfolio that was just not not even something that they would consider living off of. And I know that it can be really hard for investors when you first start out and, you know, you've got your first thousand pound coming in a month and you're like, well, I need all of that. But actually. Put half of it away so that you can reinvest that. Right. Absolutely. I think it's got to be, um, by and large, the largest part um, of any sort of splintered off um, revenue that's coming in. Yeah, that 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 is the way you you compound and build, basically. If that passive income is being used entirely to facilitate living, then you, you will find it difficult to, yeah. Yeah, to, to realise more assets. Um, even in a really mature portfolio, such as the one that I principally look after, um, the largest proportion of of revenue goes back into reinvestment. Yeah, yeah. It, 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 in percentage terms, um, you're talking single digits for every component part of overheads and all the other elements. I'm just jumping in the middle of this podcast to let you know that on Tuesday, the 29th of November, I am hosting another deal analysis masterclass because the one on the 15th of November was so successful. We're going to go through how to set realistic goals for commercial property. Yep. If you're listening to this podcast and you're hearing Sam and I talk about what you actually need to be forecasting in property right now, I'm going to give you a goals template where you can run through that yourself. We're going to go through a deal and how you should be analyzing deals and we are going to do a Q&A about how you can invest your SaaS or invest um, in commercial property at this time. Plus, we'll tell you about the last chance to enter the Members Club this year as on the 9th of December, we're closing the doors for a while. So it's the last time you can get the current price, the 2022 price. Plus, we've got some great freebies. So if you want to find out all about that you want to come to my deal analysis masterclass on tuesday the 29th of november at 7 p.m i am going to put the link below it's ncrealestate.co.uk forward slash deal dash analysis dash masterclass the link is in the show notes below click on that fill in your name and email and i'll send you all the details i cannot wait to see you there live And one of the big things that for SAS pension holders that is a massive benefit is that every year, as long as you've not crystallized your pension and you've gone, that's it, um, 
every year you can pay 40 grand tax-free from your limited company into your pension. And then your pension can lend the limited company the money. So it really works in your favor rather than paying tax on it to, you know, as dividends when we're taking it out of our limited company as income. Put that money back into your SaaS so that your SaaS can continue building its commercial property portfolio. I think it's a win-win. It's like a complete win-win, isn't it? I, I, that's that's what I do with my portfolio. Um, thinking big rather than thinking short term, which as we are seeing right now, people who are trying to get all of their money back out when they first start investing, we're starting to see those schemes collapse. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. It's, it's all too easy as well to sort of... Um, take that passive income as it as it comes and what i have found in past with some investors is that when they start utilizing that passive income for living expenses you live to your means i think um, that's a, a natural inclination of the human mind and when you start living to your means with all of the additional revenue that you're getting in it's very hard to step back from that it's mm-hmm. almost the same principle as when you get paid a salary taking an amount and putting it in savings on day one before you start <laughs> you know living up to your overdraft it for me that's the basic principle in, in terms of day-to-day and that's something that you've got to be very uh, very hot on I agree actually that comes that comes then to a point where your strategy strategy should actually be you buy a month you buy a property all of your expenses go out you get your net income a percentage of that pot should go will go into your tax pot because at the end of the year you're going to have to pay tax on it regardless of which whether you've got it in a limited company or you've got it in a uh, in your own name you're going to have to pay tax on that somewhere and then a percentage of it onto maintenance and doing up the property whatever you whatever you want there i don't know how do you have a percentage that you would think that you would put away for that for future improvements <laughs> It does vary on a, 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 it varies a lot in fairness, depending on the asset. But uh, the rule of thumb we sort of apply is somewhere between eight and 10%. Okay. That's a good, that's a good That's top heavy. And I think it's sort of, it's bearing in mind sustainability investment and things. But that, that for me is a sensible amount. Yep. Yep. So for, so that's a really good point. Um, And so eight to 10% you put in your maintenance pot, gone. There you go, in there. in terms of your tax pot, just as an FYI, um, what I do with my accountant every year is I go through and figure out how much tax roughly I'm paying on each of my investments, so my limited company, my own name. Um, and then a percentage of that, we decide at the beginning of the year how much of that I'm going to put away for tax. And we forecast what my tax bill is going to be at the end of the year. So that's a really, really good um, starting point. And you need to be doing that around this time of year, team, because your tax bill always comes up at the end of January. And we've got Christmas in the way where people like to spend a lot of money on Christmas. And then you don't have any money for your tax. Ring fence your tax. Just put it somewhere. So in January, yeah. you don't have to worry about it. And then um, reinvest. I would say try and reinvest 50% of it back into growing your portfolio. And then the rest of it is your disposable. And then you're never hunting around for money and you're never hunting around for, oh my gosh, how am I going to afford the next one? Because you're building this pot. 
And it will start really slowly. And maybe in the first couple of years of being property investors, you buy one a year, then two a year, then four a year. Very quickly, that adds up. Oh, yeah, I I, I, I concur. And I, I don't think any of us would sit here and say it's going to be um, an easy process in year one, year two, maybe even year three. I mean, it's going to be tough, but that's why that's why you spend the time and you dedicate the, the, the efforts you do to it. If, it. if it was easy, everyone would be doing it as the age old adage is. Um, I, you will find it difficult in the first couple of years, particularly. Yeah. And no property you buy and you're like, miracle, this property I've just bought, it's income generating. I didn't have to do anything. I've never had one of those. Have you? Never, never in 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 a fair few years of doing it I think that was a common misconception and I think when I first became a landlord I think um despite coming from a a family of surveyors and estate agents and (laughs) a letting agent at the time I thought right I'll put some money down and then a consistent amount of rent will come in every month into perpetuity and that's fantastic (laughs) yeah I mean (laughs) we've all been there haven't we that (laughs) you soon come to realize like any investment it is not that straightforward Mm-mm. even if you put your your money in the stock market um or crypto um you still have sleepless nights over that i know you don't have to do as much you can you just watch it on a screen but uh you're actually more i find that you're more helpless whereas uh, yeah helpless is exactly the term i would use at <laughs> least with something that is tangible um you can you can do something about it. I mean, it's more management intensive. I mean, that's what make prop that's what makes property unique as an asset class, right? Um, it's not wine or um, uh, uh, stock shares, any of that sort of stuff. It it is very different. It's management intensive, but with yeah. that management intensity comes real benefit. Yeah, yeah. And if we were going to pin down a number for return on capital employed at the moment, and I know we're saying how much we hate it but where would be realistic because I'm sick of people coming to me with 35 40 50 percent it's not going to happen unless you are really prepared to take a massive risk and most people aren't actually prepared to take that risk no they're not and I think when I have conversations with people about those sorts of deep double figures if you will um I always find it very interesting to find out why they have that mindset and where the information has come from. And mm-hmm. I think it's it's frequently very mixed. It's from unsubstantiated sources. It's something um, they may have heard somewhere. It, it's never when I when I go, try and go into the detail. It's never because I've heard that from somebody that has consistently been involved with property for a long period of time and is a chartered surveyor. No, okay. uh, it, it, you know it's so I, I always find it challenging to to have those sorts of conversations if I'm really honest um, and to sort of manage investor expectation down to what is a sensible and realistic level for me in this market which is both opportunistic and challenging um I don't want to be um I don't want to downplay it it's you know it's, it's interesting out there at the moment but I, I do think there are opportunities I think it sits somewhere between anywhere from 10, um, maybe a few percentages higher, a few percentage points higher than that. But, you know, it's in that sort of realm, I think, 10 to 15 percent. 
um, I, I'd be very, very happy with those sorts of figures. Mm-hmm. I agree. I agree. Yeah. I mean, occasionally we see higher, but it's unicorn deals. These are deals that we would have had to been working on for a year, year and a half, still won't be completed, dragging through the pipeline. Um, it's not just as simple as you buy it one month and the next month you get all that money out. It just doesn't work like that, especially because investors seem to be absolutely shocked that when they agree a discounted, I'm going to put that in air quotes, discounted price on property, the valuation go, the valuer goes out and says, oh yeah, that is the price that it's that it's worth. And people say to me, well, I thought it was worth more. Well, no, you agreed to transact at that price. So that's where we are. Yeah. That's the benchmark yeah. in the in the market. I, I agree entirely. I think it's there's a balance. It's a bit like confidence and arrogance. There's a balance between skepticism and cynicism. Um, I always go into everything, I think, not being contrary, but I would always ask questions of something that looks too good to be true. I think yeah. that's just a, a sensible approach. Um, <laughs> but but yeah, I think those sorts of figures on, on RSE are good. Uh, the, the one thing I would say is that I do find there's lots of investors out there that discount what are, to me, very decent, worthwhile deals um, because they wait for that unicorn deal, so to speak. And by the time six months, 12 months, two years, three years has, has passed by and that deal deal has sort of evaded them, I would have transacted on two to three deals at 10, 12% that will probably in time get up to those sorts of levels. Um, and I have income rolling in, whereas they will be in a position where capital is sitting, doing very little. I'd rather deploy capital cautiously and earn a sensible passive return than sit on it and wait for that unicorn. Yeah, I agree with that. The question, oh, well, if I buy this, won't there be a better deal? Mm. If you always ask that question, you're never going to invest in anything. Yeah, yeah. And I think it's a, um, there are commonalities with, some of the most successful investors I've met and have as clients. And I think what I would say is that there's certain elements they all have in common, which are um, are fairly obvious, I suppose, you know, in in terms of being intelligent, astute. But one thing I'd say on that is that they they tend to consistently transact in any market. Yeah. um, And they don't sit on their hands because I think that's, yeah. That that's a surefire way of, of of not getting there. I've known investors that have come to us in the past, and we've had sort of um, fairly short term relationships with that that have set sat on capital, significant capital, for over a decade. Um, and when you think about somebody that's made a relatively conservative deal ten years before when they were when they were thinking about it and compounded that interest up to that point the disparity in wealth is 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 yeah pretty sizable yeah 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 so the point being yes the market's changing but the market changes all the time all the time you know the a deal isn't going to be necessarily priced the same as it on a monthly change 
even. I mean, it probably will stay similar, but, you know, there's no difference in investing at the height of the market to the bottom of the market. And do we really know where the bottom of the market is? No. Do we know where the high of the market is? No. You know, we can see trends when we look back, but we can't look forward and project. So investing now and thinking, okay, am I going to get a good return on this? Brilliant. A good yield. Great. That works. Can I get correct profits? Great. Fabulous. And then keep growing. Yes, you might start slowly. But eventually, consistency is key with everything. The people who have the biggest successes in life know that anything worth doing is a marathon, not a sprint. Yeah, 100%. And I think I had this conversation with an investor of ours the other day who voiced his frustration with the terminology being used um, around property and one of the terms that people use is uh, it's a Warren Buffett phrase, which is um, don't try and catch a falling knife. And I think he and I both agreed that we find it. Sorry, she and I both um, agreed that we find this really frustrating because it is a it is a terminology that's very specific to stocks and shares. Yeah. Um, there is no way or I've seen very rarely investors time the market. Um, and if you're waiting to do that, best of luck to you. Um, <laughs> and with property, it's far different to stocks and shares. It's far less volatile, isn't it? So yeah. provided you make an investment decision that works for you at the time and you've looked further down the line to do some stress testing, it makes sense. Agreed. And on that note, let's wrap up the podcast. Thanks, Sam, for coming on. Really yeah, thanks very much. No Thank you so much for listening today. If you've loved this pod, make sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. And make sure to leave a five-star review as this makes me so happy and it helps to boost the show and get it out there to more property investors. Finally, if you want to email the pod, you can write to me, Natasha at ncrealestate.co.uk. I cannot wait to catch up with you again soon.